This is Brent Lang of Variety Magazine, and I'm joined today in our Los Angeles studio with the co-founders of Gunpowder and Sky, Van Tuffler and Floris Bauer. In a very short period of time, Gunpowder and Sky has established itself as a major force in the indie space, releasing such films as Lords of Chaos, Hearts Beat Loud, and Her Smell. It's my uh, great pleasure to have Van and Floris here. And we're going to talk a little bit about some major industry trends and, and familiarize people with Gunpowder and Sky. I think sort of to start, I'm really interested in your take on uh, the theatrical space right now, because there's been a lot written about sort of this box office apocalypse, mm. you know, things don't seem to be working uh, theatrically in the way they, they once did. And that's been sort of focused primarily on the major studio films. What's been sort of the scene uh, in the indie space? Are, are things um, connecting theatrically? Is, is, is there some spillover from sort of the problems in the larger theatrical space? How is that impacting uh, the indie space right now? I mean, from my perspective, the key is flexibility. Uh, and that's what we all talk about amongst ourselves and to filmmakers. So uh, unlike the major studios, there's a lot of baggage around the relationships with the theater owners and distribution. Um, and uh, I think being open to how long movies stay in theaters, how they're released, how they're marketed, um, and when they go to TVOD or SVOD or other windows, uh, we, whenever we go into a film, whether we're making it or acquiring it, we talk to the filmmakers to say, let's optimize the release. Sometimes that means bypassing theatrical altogether. Sometimes that means a hastened window for theatrical. But uh, not being precious that it needs a certain level of uh, a promotion and time in theaters. Um, now, theater owners are less flexible, <laughs> but um, particularly for young people, you have to give them a real reason to spend money and go to theaters um, because the experience isn't as wonderful as it was for us as kids. It was, first of all, it was the only time you could see movies, but um, technology has enabled kids to watch stuff on demand, how they want, when they want, at their freedom. Um, so you really have to give them a compelling reason to make an event to go to theaters. And that's, that's a pretty high bar. Um, so I think that uh, having flexibility, uh, being a smaller independent studio, it, it enables you to do that. Um, and the fact of the matter is uh, the trending is just not great for movie theaters. Someone told me, um, and I grew up in New York, so I, that there are 20-plus percent less th seats particularly midtown to downtown than there were a few years ago. That doesn't bode well for uh, theatrical revenues. Um, so when you're, when you're talking about having flexibility, what do you mean by that? What sort of gunpowder and skies approach? When, when you pick up a film, are you doing a traditional theatrical window? Are you doing some kind of hybrid? Are you going straight to um, SVODs, AVODs? How do you approach uh, a release of a film? I'll let you speak in a second, but all of the above. So, uh, for example, we haven't sort of um, concluded this uh, definitively, but we just acquired a documentary on a, on this wonderful young rapper, Little People, who unfortunately died. 
he's uh, sort of emblematic of these um, young rappers who go from obscurity to infamy uh, via SoundCloud. Um, and unfortunately, he overdosed. Uh, but he has these rabid, rabid fans, rabid young fans. And we are thinking about doing a one-night-only release that may have exclusive music in theaters. And then it will go to TVOD and SVOD. So literally 24 hours. Um, we did this, you know, when I was at MTV with Madonna's Truth or Dare 2, the second movie. We had one week in theaters. And so sometimes we do 90 days, uh, and then we go to TVOD and SVOD. Sometimes we'll sell movies right to SVOD. So the first four movies we did were with Jason Blum, and we sold two of those to Netflix and two of those to uh, HBO. And uh, Cam, one in particular on Netflix, was released over the Thanksgiving holidays. And probably more people saw that within a week than have seen a lot of Jason's films in theaters, uh, which he admitted. Um, so I think you just have to figure what's right for each project. And are you finding that that's you know, a more profitable model for you? Uh, does it help you in terms of your marketing spend, your distribution costs? Are you getting uh, more of the revenue from a film release by not going, you know, a traditional sort of theatrical uh, run for some of these films? Definitely. I think um, because we don't preset the distribution strategy and we really look at it in a holistic way, how can we create maximum awareness um, with efficient spending? Um we look at all the windows, including theatrical, very specifically. So for us, there's no point overspending theatrical if we don't think that is where most of our audience is going to watch the, the film. Um, uh, and we always set the distribution strategy after testing it and thinking about it a lot internally. So probably our biggest windows from a revenue point of view, or at least a net revenue point of view, after marketing spend are our second window. So, so HBO, Netflix, TVOT. And when you're having conversations with, with filmmakers, I mean, how open are they to this? Because I, I feel like you still read in uh, trade press, you know, when there's a big bidding war or something like that, that, you know, that, that those filmmakers still want that, that traditional theatrical release. Is that becoming, you know, a little bit of an anachronism or are people more open to to novel distribution strategies or do you still have to kind of have a kind of a, a tough conversation with people it depends they're much more open than they used to be you, you know if i were to do uh jackass and napoleon dynamite they they may have bypassed theaters altogether right but one one in particular um I acquired this movie, Foot Fist Way, with uh, Will Smith and um, Adam McKay and uh, Jody Hill, who did Eastbound and Down, who's just a great, uh, wonderful young director. Uh, we we felt, because <laughs> I think it may have been the second or first worst testing movie in Paramount's history, right? And we tried to convince Jody to release it on Funny or Die and uh, MTV.com at the time. And he wanted a traditional theatrical window. It was his first movie. So we couldn't argue with that. But I bet if we had that conversation today, uh, he might feel differently because we would market it socially and virally and potentially get more eyeballs than would go see that movie and pay $10 to see it in movie theaters. 
And just to add, I think a lot of the the people and filmmakers we're talking to ultimately also want a successful release. So it's not only about the amount of theaters. They want the release to be seen as successful and they want to get into the theaters where they think the audience, which will most likely want to see it, is going to see it. So it's more quality over quantity, the same as in terms of the length of the release. Sometimes I wonder when when people talk about, you know, the theatrical experience and they have this sort of reverence for it. um, I mean, do you think consumers feel the same way? Because I I know that, that, quite frankly, I I don't always have a wonderful experience when I go to a movie theater. Maybe it's dirty. Maybe people are talking. I mean, maybe I I would prefer to just watch something in the home. I mean, is that something that, that, that people aren't really listening to what consumers are telling them when they sort of talk about it in that in that sort of um, almost religious, quasi-religious uh, way? It's hard. I, I mean, you think about the uh, evolution or lack of evolution of the in-theater experience. It hasn't changed that much, right? I mean, you've got some IMAX theaters, you've got theaters, you reserve seats um, that are, are wonderful, but they're they're more of the anomaly. Uh, and so I think you've got to make either the movie or the experience exceptional. Uh, having a bar in a lot of the movie theaters is good. So Alamo's having success with younger movie-going audiences because it's a better experience. It's a night out. But I, I think that people are not listening enough to the consumer saying, you know what, it's not worth me paying all this money for that experience. I'd rather stay home or wait for the movie to get into a window that I can enjoy at home. Yeah, and it's, I think it's, it's, it's the cost of the ticket, but obviously also driving there and the parking and the X, Y, and Z. And we were talking a little bit about the sort of the filmmakers and, and their growing flexibility with some of these distribution strategies, but there's obviously another party involved in that, and that's the theater owners themselves. So what are you sort of hearing from that end of things? I mean, are they being flexible too about letting your movies in? I mean, how, how is that kind of conversation too? You know, I, I think they've been pretty great to tell you the truth as long as you work with them in terms of release dates and, and when you have the theaters. They want more programming. They want alternative programming. Clearly, Disney still doing really well with four-quadrant event movies, but they like to have the options. Now, that may mean you're not in 3,000 theaters. You can start in 50 and go to a few hundred. But I think that the theater owners like alternatives. And I also believe, though maybe MoviePass didn't get it right, they're open to alternative pricing, particularly at, at low traffic times of day. You mean sort of subscription service kinds of things? Yes, or flexible pricing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Let's let's go back to kind of the formation of Gunpowder and Sky. Um, Van, I know that you had a lot of experience. You, you were at Viacom, you were at uh, MTV Films, um, and uh, Flores, uh, you were at Endemol. How did you guys get together, and, and why did you see this as a space you, you wanted to go into? 
Well, I, you know, I think separately, uh, Floris and I uh, had a similar notion of kind of a premium content studio that was uh, sort of youth-oriented, forward-looking, that would uh, create content for newer platforms. It just felt like there was a content renaissance. There were platforms emerging um, every day. And a lot of the content, particularly for uh, young people, was, was amateur, was based on, you know, kids were posting videos. So there was an opportunity to create more premium content that targeted young people. And um, also there was going to be a, a sort of a day of reckoning with linear TV channels where they were going to have to find alternative sources of programming because the audiences were getting smaller. So all those things led uh, each of us separately to uh, come up with this notion of creating um, a content studio, creating brands that could live on OTT platforms, targeting young people. And we got together primarily through Peter Chernin and Otter. And uh, this was, when, when did you guys form the company? 2016 we started. Yeah. And we, we prepared for it half a year or something. So the market looked very different at that time. In, in what way? Well, when we when we came up with the notion of the studio, we were seeing that audiences and obviously specifically younger people were moving very quickly from traditional and linear TV channels to these new platforms. And on these new platforms, you had like what Van was saying from cat videos, uh, makeup tutorials, etc., which are very meaningful in themselves, but it's not... Uh, as we call it, kind of premium uh, content. With the shift, we assumed that at some point when the audience moves as a rule of media, that at some point um, uh, uh, advertising, subscription, etc., revenues will follow. And because of that, you're able to spend more money on the content. And with more money coming into the space, more quality, newer creators, newer formats, um, etc. That was what we were betting on. When we came into the market and set up this new studio purely focused on premium content for the space, that market was not there, right? It was everybody was talking about the digital pennies and the MCNs at that stage. Um, so we were taking a bet that what we thought what was going to happen was going to happen. You had some smaller digital players who were uh, uh, starting to spend some money, like the the, the, the Go 90s, uh, watchables, etc. Um, since then, we 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 the market has actually shifted way quicker than we could have hoped for. With now all these new OTT platforms, which are looking for differentiated content as well as youth-focused content, so we're having the 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 Warners, the Apples, the the Netflix, Quibi, Comcast launching new services. Uh, the, the monetization on YouTube becoming better. Um, so there is more and more outlets and, and demand uh, for premium content, differentiated premium content from both films, series, as well as brands and channels. So where do you fit into all of this? Because you're absolutely right. I feel like in the last year and a half, I mean, you have such major players coming into this space. Um, you know, you, as you mentioned, Warner uh, just announcing yesterday, uh, just just you know this week, uh, their their HBO uh, Max service. You have Disney Plus coming in. You have this um, AVOD service that Comcast is 
launching Apple. Where do you fit into this? Are, are you going to be a provider of content for them? Are you a competitor? How does this work? And then you have something like Quibi, which is which is a little different with its sort of short form yeah. content. Well, we're providing content to all of those services. To tell you the truth, uh, we haven't announced the series, but with the Warner streaming service with Quibi, we're doing their first series, Fifty States of Terror. We're doing movies for these services. Um, so it's it's a great time to make premium content for these different platforms. You know, in addition to that, though, we're not sort of randomly um, uh, kind of picking the categories that we play in. Uh, we have specific genres that we're doubling down in. So sci-fi, horror, music, unscripted, um, comedy, and... As part of that, we're also creating these sort of branded ecosystems that have primarily lived in the AVOD world. So um, we have a channel called Dust, which is a sci-fi channel. And um, if you think about it, the next Ridley Scott will come out of the digital ecosystem. And in fact, we've got over 500 short films, right, with, with name actors uh, we we uh, acquired George Lucas's sh- sh- first film, Robert Zemeckis, and all these young filmmakers are making these sort of thirteen or less minute films that live in this world. Uh, they're consumed in this world, but then there's this IP that we can spin off and sell to other platforms. So there are also IP farms as well. Um, And so these genres we pick, we double down on them, we create content if they belong on a different platform like Quibi or in theaters, Uh, you know, a movie prospect came out of dust um, and um, then that's where they will live. So it's this combination of branded ecosystems that aren't really competing with Quibi because they're living on Facebook and YouTube and Roku, and they live on Apple and Samsung and other platforms. Uh, and then we have IP that we kind of sell to different platforms. And you're making money through advertising or through subscription, or how does that work too? So, so the, these 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 brands they do everything, as Van mentioned, from short form to series to films to podcasts, and we have our own direct to consumer channels which live on across a bunch of platforms. On the, the the films and series, we make money through box office, TVOT, uh, sales to Netflix, HBO. Then the channels uh, uh, we generate revenues through uh, programmatic advertising. Um, and uh, we will through affiliate fees and subscription in the coming period. So I think, and, and coming back to, we think the opportunity is, there is a big opportunity for, for indie studios to create and sell great content, especially if you have differentiated content, targeted content, and then creating these larger brands where we want to be a trusted curator and programmer within a specific genre, and these brands can live on the bigger platforms like Apple and Amazon and Samsung and Comcast. So where instead of only selling one-off films and series, we're also packaging them in larger propositions. And I think as a next, um, uh, how do you say it, iteration, I think you're going to see a lot of these larger platforms which need to become larger and larger and attract more and more people 
everybody's focused on originals, original content, which is extremely important. But in order for these platforms to ultimately become successful, they need more existing brands on their platform to attract larger amounts of audience and reduce programming and marketing costs and have sticky content on their platform. So I think you're going to see a lot of brands existing and new brands come up. Is, is that because it's almost like a, uh, a sign of quality or something for, for a user? What, why do you think I, that's I think, important? Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of people who are now saying, um, I think one which, which is, is, I think, a mistake where people say young people only want VOD content. They want to watch it whenever they want and they want to find it themselves. I think ultimately people care about brands, right? People wear the same sneakers. People want to listen to playlists of Spotify. You want to be part of a brand. You want to know that if you go to a trusted brand, uh, you're going to find something good and you can talk about it with your friends. Um, and um, I think that reduces the amount of spend on programming and your it reduces your spend on marketing. And I think a lot of people now... We've seen the issues with, for example, Netflix, that sometimes it takes you 15 or 30 minutes to find something you want. Um, I think people are going to start focusing on that more and more. Um, it makes a lot of sense that, that a smaller player who's nimble could really profit from, from all this change because it feels like this change is just it's so accelerated. Things are so different in just a matter of months. But... I've also recently been just sort of going around to traditional studios and I see this massive infrastructure and I wonder what your thoughts are as people who've also, you know, worked in that space too. How do these companies pivot? I mean, is it difficult when you have all of this infrastructure, these jobs, these all these people who are on your payroll and and you know, ways of, of releasing content to the world that are so sort of baked into your business model. How, how hard is it for these companies to adjust to, to this, you know, uh, new frontier? It's, um, it's really hard. I think that, um, you know, what was a Steve Jobs expression that the people who created the last invention are probably the last people who are going to do the next one because they have to get it out of their own way. And there's all this sort of um, baggage that, and, and a lot of it is, is good or bad baggage, but, you know, I think that um, being at Viacom, uh, it was really important that... Um, Anybody who stops listening to the consumer first, that's when you get into trouble. So MTV was a bit of a canary in a coal mine. All these young people were watching videos on YouTube. They were consuming content on YouTube. But because there were traditional distribution deals where DirecTV or Comcast would pay a billion dollars for the content on MTV... MTV couldn't put its content on the platform where most consumers were going. And so that was, it was a nice baggage to have. <laughs> you got a big check for your content, but then you couldn't be flexible and put it where people wanted to consume your content. When you don't have that baggage and you are small, you can follow the consumer. If the consumer wants to watch a movie you make on demand in home and will pay the same price, well, that's where you should be. 
Um, so I, I think that that the studios recognize the shift in consumer behavior. Look at the decline in linear TV ratings, the decline in young people going to movie theaters. It's there, but it's really hard when you've got a lot of partners involved to say to theater owners, oh, by the way, I'm going to shorten your window from 90 days to 30 days. You're good with that, right? You've seen the reactions that the theater owners have. Like, hey, come on now. So it ta- it's going to take a beat. It really is. Uh, we don't have that baggage. No. Uh, we can just listen to the consumer. And, and the, the purity of purpose provides us a lot of freedom. Yeah, I think, and I think there's a lot of smart people at these larger places. But I think also the, the having to focus on keeping your revenues and your profitability up, whilst actually in order to pivot to the new world, you're going to have to do things which in the uh, short to medium term will actually, you're focusing on lower profit uh, initiatives and you're going to have to let go of a couple of juicy uh, juicy deals um, and for that you need to also have shareholders which kind of appreciate you going into that direction I think that that's that's the balance which a lot of people are uh, having to concern themselves with well it's interesting you say that because I talk sometimes to analysts and I'm kind of struck by the fact that they treat a lot of these streaming services they almost see them as just Additive that it's just going to add revenues to you know their overall sort of pie, but they're taking content away. You know they're they're wrapping up licensing deals, which are basically, and at least in my estimation, pure profit for them. Yeah, look at friends, right? Yeah. Putting you know pulling that back, putting it on their service, which comes with all kinds of attendant costs. So, I guess I'm just sort of. What kind? If you're a publicly traded company, isn't that really problematic? If you have to do things when you're, what you if you just look at it from a pure number standpoint, you think this is this was a terrible quarter, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how how do you do that? You how need do to you, explain yeah. like this is yeah. going to cost us X for the next ten years, but the opportunity is Y, and that's right. why we're going to do it. And for a Netflix, that's as a premium play coming from the, let's quote-unquote, digital side of it, it's an easier thing to explain than for a uh, for another big studio and, and with legacy revenues. It is a two-sided coin because they're getting big license fees, but they don't have a direct relationship with their audience. And that's the price they pay. And so the pot at the end of the rainbow is, I'm going to get my content back, and now I'm going to know who's watching it. And so when I release a movie or I release something with that actor in it, I can talk to them directly. Why uh, do you think um, that that legacy media companies have, other than Disney, sort of, and, and actually I would argue MTV, at, at least at, at one point, have that kind of direct relationship with the, its consumers? Is it because they, they use sort of third parties to get their content out to the world? Why do they have? Why, why have they? Why have they sort of failed to establish that kind of connection? Oh, because there were middlemen for the most part. You know, there were cable operators, and so, and and there was a really imperfect system. Nielsen that took a very small sample of the country that only took their live viewing for a long time. So, 
The way uh, we got information was <laughs> through emails and phone calls. When, when they didn't like something, we heard it from an email, but it wasn't as if we had this direct conversation. We knew who was watching it in the Midwest or who liked what record or video where. We just had to, to beg and borrow. And so it was just there were middlemen involved. So if you're somebody who's sort of entering this space, I mean, where do you see sort of the opportunities I mean, without giving away, uh, you know, competitive advantages? You know, a lot of people that I talk to seem very anxious about this, this new frontier. They, they're, you know, frankly, they're almost depressed about sort of how things are changing. You both seem to feel that there's a lot of opportunity. What, what sort of is exciting to you right now? Well, I, I think this this is part of the struggle for both of us at big companies who did things a certain way. You know, Endemol made great content. They made great formats. They sold it to traditional television networks around the world. Um, what's changed is the consumer is in control. And that is really exciting. They tell you how they want to see things. And as a content maker... If you're, again, if you're not precious about your windowing, then that is a huge opportunity. So if you make your movie, uh, maybe HBO will buy it, or maybe the new Warner streaming service, or maybe Hulu will take your channel and distribute it for you, or Roku, you know, this great AVOD system will take your channel and they'll sell ads against it, and they don't charge $5 a month to a consumer. Um, I think as long as you're open to the noise of culture and consumption, then that's a huge opportunity. But as we talked about, if you're married to an old system that pays you a lot of money and you have to keep your profit margin a certain way, it's tough to pivot and embrace that as quickly as new companies can. Yeah, and we, and we don't need the traditional gatekeepers to build our IP and our brands, right? So we, because we're building these brands that if, we can go with a series to a buyer and see if anyone's interested or if we think it's actually better or we can do we can tell it in a shorter amount of time we can put things on our own channels and as long as an audience agrees with us that it's interesting and they love our brand we're going to continue to grow it's interesting that you were talking about launching in in 2016 because there were a number of other indie studios that launch at about the same time, and uh, you know, I'm thinking of um, Open Road in one of its sort of iterations, and and Broad Green, and I guess Relativity had been there for a little while, but STX, kind of STX really high mortality uh, rate when you when you look at those names. Where did where did they go wrong in your estimation? Because we've talked a lot about sort yeah. of big traditional media. Why did some of the smaller players also? sort of fail to, yeah. to thrive? Well, I mean, I know it's a bit of a buzzkill, <laughs> but um, but I think they went into it relying on traditional windowing, to tell you the truth. And, and, and so um, if you don't keep your costs in check, uh, both in the negative cost of making a movie and your overhead, then you're going to get burned if the traditional windows don't pay off for you. And so one or two failed movies cost you tens of millions of dollars. And we, uh, 
we didn't sort of go fall into that trap, really. And particularly if you're targeting young people, uh, you don't have to spend hundreds of millions in negative costs. You can just make it fun and innovative and novel, and they'll try to find it. Uh, so if you opened a studio and relied on traditional windowing and traditional models, then there would be a high mortality rate unless you just keep banging out hits. Um, we're also about to go into the Toronto Film Festival, which I assume you, you will both be at. Uh, this year's Sundance, the prices for a lot of content made big headlines, you know, huge sales for things like The Report and Britney Runs a Marathon and Late Night, and Late Night which, which did not do well. Uh, do you expect those prices to be as high at future festivals? I mean, I feel like there's like a, a boom and bust cycle or something. You know, you have one year where it's... That's right. the year before. Deals. Yeah, the exactly. year before yeah. was a bit of a bust. Yeah. <laughs> right. So what what was it that happened that that goosed prices at the last Sundance? Will there be a kind of a, a hangover effect at future film festivals? But what's your sort of take on that? I mean, I, I don't know what Flores feels about. I think you're right. It is, it is are peaks and valleys. I think that the last year, streamers in particular, and particularly Amazon, came in with a checkbook and wanted to say we're going to buy these sort of broader movies. Uh, I, I didn't personally think that Late Night belonged in theaters. I thought it was a, and is a perfectly great movie for Amazon. It's a good, really good family movie. It's funny. Um, and then who knows, next year they may not show up or maybe Netflix comes in and pays a lot of money. But the year before, they kind of sat out, right? Yeah. And for us, it's the great thing about our studio is that's why we, we don't consider ourselves to be an indie studio because we do more things, is that if there are more aggressive buyers, it's, it's harder for us to acquire titles. On the other hand, it's, it's a better market for us to develop and sell our, our films and series. So it's great. <laughs> if, 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 if there's, an, a, a, again, aggressive buyers coming into Toronto, it's a good sign for us in other parts of our business. And on the acquisition side, we, we don't need to fill a pipeline of, let's say, X films a year because we have output deals or because we have an overhead to, 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 to support. So we're very fine to release... 15 films a year were also very fine, uh, good to release two to five films a year. Because you're not saying I have to hit a certain number no. each year or something like that. I have some contractual obligations. Right. right. And also we don't have contractual obligations, which is another kind of issue. As you know, with, with, with some other studios, you have contractual obligations to be in a certain amount of theaters. And then that starts hitting your P&A, whilst actually you might not believe that it should actually be in that many theaters, but people are putting them out regardless because they have these obligations. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't a, help anyone. That's a great point because when you look at these sales prices, you think, oh, it's $14 million, but you don't realize, oh, well, there's actually a $20 million P&A commitment. Or something. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Because the year before, we had a movie we produced called Summer of 84, and we were kind of like... People didn't buy it for a theatrical release. We're like, oh, and then we sold it to Shutter, and and it was one of, if not their most viewed movie at the time. And so, and we sold it around the world. So, in in some ways, the market speaks for itself, and and the the project finds the right home eventually. But 
being married to having to spend all that money to release it theatrically and not knowing what the outcome will be, that gets to be dangerous at times. So could you tell me what, what's behind the name, what, Gunpowder and Sky? What, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds cool. It, it, it is, uh, it, it, it's, um, I don't sleep, and it, it, it came to me in a dream. Uh, well, that was because when I was developing my own plan, I called the studio Below the Radar, only to find out there were 15 studios named Below the Radar. But, um, and it was a lame name. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lame name. And um, I, uh, this lyric kept coming to me. I, I do not like guns at all, just, just to be clear. But it, it had this infinite possibility, and it's from an Amy Mann song. And it is actually meant to be ironic because it's this song, Fourth of July, Gunpowder and Sky, what a waste of... Uh, Gunpowder and Sky. <laughs> Wait, it, yeah, uh, yeah, whatever. It, it's ironic, and, and uh, but it uh, felt like it had this sort of infinite possibility, and uh, and I called Amy Mann, and she, uh, I didn't, I didn't really have to, but I called her, and just karmically, it felt like I wanted to, and she's like, as long as you treat artists fairly, then I will bless it. So uh, we've we've tried to live up to that mantra. Well, Van and Forrest, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having us. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing.